Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Johnny Williams, and I am Brian Williams' little brother. And uh, we are so glad to be here today. I'm here with my wife, Jessica, and my three children, Gracie and Silas and Elijah. And uh, I'm so thankful to Heritage for allowing us to come this weekend. We got to be here with you all day yesterday doing a parenting workshop. And, you know, I, I've known Sydney, Pastor Sydney, since 2002. So about 17 years, and I've had a privilege of seeing Heritage from the very beginning and getting to see what the Lord has done here through this church. And uh, my wife and I, we feel like you're part of our family. We're part of your family, and I've had a chance to be a part of a lot of things that you do. So when we're here, we feel like we're home, and uh, we see friends and brothers and sisters in Christ. And so I'm so thankful uh, to be here. I'm thankful uh, to get to worship with you and uh, to have Pastor Melvin and the worship team lead us this morning with such a privilege and I just want to say a quick word of thank you also to Pastor Sidney. And I know you all know this, but you have been blessed uh, with just such a loving, gracious, wise pastor, uh, one of the greatest pastors I've ever met. And so I'm so thankful to get to be here to worship with you, Pastor, and your church family, to get to celebrate baptisms. And uh, we've been praying for you and Melvin and the other families this weekend as well, and we'll continue to lift you up. Uh, but I want to spend some time in the Word with you this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Luke chapter 19. And uh, we're going to start there. You know, in the 1900s in Kenya, there was a boy named Kamani Maruj. Now, when Kamani was a young boy there in Kenya, they did not have free public education available to everybody in his village. And so Kamani didn't go to school right away. However, by 2003, they made it available and Kamani was finally able to go to school. So like many kids, he started in the first grade. What makes this story kind of remarkable is that by the time school was available to him, by the time public school was made available to him, and by the time he started in first grade, Kamani was 84 years old. At the time, he had 30 grandchildren. In fact, two of the grandchildren were in his first grade class with him. And so every day was bring your grandparent to school day for those kids. And Kamani was a great student, though. In fact, by the time he was in third grade, he was head of the class. They named him head boy of the school. He was 86 years old at the time. A few years later, he even had the chance to address the U.N. and talk about the refugee crisis there where he was. They made a movie about his life in 2009. And just a few years after that, he passed away. But what I love about the story of Kamani is that you have a man... Late in his 80s, starting school, he actually holds the Guinness Book of World Records for the oldest student to ever begin primary school. Of course he does. I can't imagine anyone being older. But what I love about it is that Kamani, he never retired from growing. He wanted to keep growing. He wanted to keep learning. And that is my heart for us this morning as we start to talk a little bit about families and what the Word of God says about it. One of my hearts is simply this. Let us never outgrow growing. Let us never outgrow growing. Let us never look at what's going on in our lives, what's going on in our homes, and say, we're good. We got it figured out. But let us be able to look at what's going on in our hearts, what's going on in our homes, and say, I still want to grow. 
We still need the Lord. Let us never outgrow growing. My prayer for us this morning is that we would long to see continual growth in our lives, in our church, and in our families. So let's pray together and then we'll walk through some of these passages. God, we give you worship this morning for allowing us to be in your presence, for allowing us to be with the church family, to celebrate baptisms and salvation, to praise you through song and testimony and scripture and prayer and fellowship, Lord. What a, what a blessing, God. We give you all the glory. And I pray today as we open up your word that you would speak to our hearts. That you would bring us to a point of longing to see you move in our homes and our families. To continue to grow us, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. My wife and I, we live in Houston, Texas. I'm from Dallas, but we're in Houston, and I pastor a church there. I've been there for eight years now, and my parents don't live too far away. And several years ago, we went over to my parents one day in the summer just to hang out, let the kids get some time with the grandparents. And while we were hanging out, my dad said, hey, let's order some pizza. So we ordered pizza, and then he and I drove down to Papa John's to get the pizza. We go to Papa John's, we get the pizza, and when they gave us the pizza, they also gave us a tree. And I said, no, we're just going to eat pizza today. And they said, no, you get a free tree with your pizza. And I said, why are you giving out trees with pizza? You know, I've, I've ordered pizza before. I've never seen this happen. And they said, well, today is Earth Day. And everybody who gets a pizza gets a free tree. And you should go home and plant it. I said, I don't want to go home and plant a tree. I want to go home and eat my pizza. <laughs> but we took the tree just to be nice. We went home. And my dad and I, we have no intention of planting this tree. It's 110 degrees all day, every day in Texas. You know what I'm talking about here in Florida. And so I, I put the tree on the counter and we get out the pizza. I sit down, I'm ready to eat it. But of course, my kids see the tree and say, what is that? And right away, I know I'm not going to eat my pizza, am I? And I said, oh, it's a tree. You're supposed to plant it. They said, yes, let's plant it. And within five seconds, they have shovels and buckets and watering cans. And they got the tree. And we're going outside. And sure enough, we're out there. I think I got a picture of us planting the tree. And we go out there and we're planting this tree. And they even named the tree, which once you name the tree, you know, you know it means something pretty special. They named it Lolly. And so what happened is, after we planted that tree, every time we would go out to my parents' house, one of the first things the kids would do is they would run out to see how tall the tree was and see how much it's grown. In fact, they would get a ruler, and they would measure how many inches it's grown. And a lot of times, early on, we were measuring the growth by the inch. They'd say, it grew half an inch! And I thought, oh my goodness, this tree's never going to make it. The tree continued to grow. Inches and inches, you can see in the pictures, it got taller than my five-year-old son, Elijah. Eventually got taller than Gracie and Silas, too. It even got taller than me. It survived the Harvey hurricane of 2017. It stayed firm in the ground. And now i got another picture, and this will show how tall it is now. It just keeps growing. We don't use rulers anymore to measure it. The yardstick won't even do it. Tape measure, we can't reach high enough. It just keeps on growing. We're going to talk today about the idea that God is able to grow our families, that God is able to transform our homes. And I want to encourage you because I know that sometimes when you look at your spiritual growth, when you look at the transformation taking place in your own family, in your own home, I know that sometimes you feel like you're measuring the growth by the inch, don't you? You know, you look at your kids and you say, 
yeah, you know, they're a little bit closer to the Lord or their attitudes have transformed a little bit or our relationship with them is a little bit healthier, but I'm measuring the growth by the inches. It's two inches better this year. It's an inch and a half better this year. And I know that sometimes it can feel like that transformation, that growth is very slow. But I want to encourage you this morning. We all need transformation in our homes. And the Lord is able to do that. Whether you're here this morning saying, I need a miracle in my marriage. Whether you're here this morning saying, my prayers are right now for my kids. Maybe you're here saying, I got grandkids right now that are far from the Lord. And I'm on my knees for them. Maybe it's other families, relatives, neighbors, families in the community that are on your heart. But let us all come together this morning as a church family and say, even if the growth seems small, the Lord is able to transform the home. He's able to do it. There is nothing that is impossible for God. Amen? So this morning, I'm going to preach a little bit differently. Usually, when I'm at my church, we preach through books of the Bible, and I kind of just go a passage at a time. So usually, I take one passage of Scripture, and I preach that passage, those four verses, those eight verses. But today, I'm going to do something a little different. We're actually going to look at a story for my first point. We're going to look at another Bible story for my last point. And there in the middle, we're going to look at a lot of stories. So we're going to kind of just preach through some stories this morning. And this will be the last sermon of your Gospel Family series that you've been walking through together as a church. My brother's preached the last three weeks, and he preached on Gospel Family each week. And each week he preached on a gospel family worships together. A gospel, a gospel family enjoys the word of God together. And a gospel family prays together. And this morning what we're going to look at is simply this big picture vision. That the reason we want to be gospel families is because the gospel can transform our families. So I want us to do three things this morning. The first thing is I want us to recognize our need for transformation in the home. Let us begin, let us just recognize our need for transformation in the home. Let none of us say, I've outgrown growing. Let none of us say, I've given up on transformation. But let us start this morning by saying, yes, I need growth in my home, transformation in my home, sanctification in the home. I need the Lord in my home. Let's look at Luke chapter 19. In Luke chapter 19 and verse 1, it says that Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through the town. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. He was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So we got a short man, or if you know the old children's song, a wee little man, Zacchaeus, right? And he wants to see Jesus, but the crowd is so big that he can't see after. I'm a short guy. And I've been to concerts before where I can't see the stage because people in front of me are too tall. So I know what Zacchaeus is going through. He's a wee little man. He's a short man, small in stature. He can't see Jesus because of the crowds. Look at what he does in verse 4. So he ran on ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. How many of y'all know the children's song Zacchaeus? Raise your hand. I won't make you come up here and sing it. All right, y'all sing it. No. But we, we've heard this song. If you haven't heard it, it, it says Zacchaeus was a wee little man. I don't know. Maybe it was written by an Irish person. He's a wee little man. A wee little man was he. He climbed a thin, what kind of tree? Sycamore. 
Pastor Cindy, I'll tell you, I'll sit with Christians all over America, and they can't name the books of the Bible, but they all know that it's a sycamore tree. I, we, that detail is just seared into our brains. We'll forget everything. We'll forget the birthdays of our children before we'll forget that Zacchaeus was in a sycamore tree because the Lord he wanted to see. And if you want to know what happened for the rest of the song, let's just look at the scriptures. So he climbs up in this tree. He's waiting for Jesus to pass that way. But look at verse 5. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. He wants to see Jesus, but Jesus is already seeking him out. So he heard and came down, and he received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. These are the crowds now grumbling as they see Jesus and Zacchaeus together. And they said, he's gone in to the, be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Remember, Zacchaeus is a tax collector. I know many of you aren't big fans of the IRS. Well, back then, they were even less of a fan of the tax collectors. And now you got tax collectors, a lot of times, who are Jewish tax collectors. That's their people, but they're coming to their own people and taking their money for the Romans. They don't like tax collectors, and Jesus is going into this sinner's house. But we know that all of us are sinners, and we all need Jesus in our house. And verse 8 says, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So Jesus goes into Zacchaeus' house. And the moment that Jesus is in his house, transformation starts to take place. You see, friends, if we allow Jesus into our home, if we allow Jesus to be at the center of our family, the center of our routine and our schedule and what we do and what we talk about, if he is in the home, if the word of God is open in our home, if worship music is being played in our home, if prayers are taking place in our home, transformation happens in our home. When Jesus comes into the house, transformation takes place. The first transformation we see in verse 8 is repentance of sin. Zacchaeus repents of his sin. Once Jesus is in his home, his sin is exposed. And while everyone else is grumbling about Jesus being in his home, the sinner repents of his sin. Now, we throw around the words confess and repent a lot. But we need to understand this morning that confession and repentance are two different things. Confession means you agree. When you confess your sins, you're agreeing with God that you are a sinner. You're agreeing with God that that thing is sin. That's confession. Repentance is actually turning away from that sin. Right? So here's an illustration I'd give you to kind of keep that in your mind. Let's say I'm driving the car and Jess, my wife, is sitting shotgun and we're driving down the road. And as we're driving, she's looking at the GPS on her phone and she says, you know, baby, I, I think you're going the wrong way. And she shows me the GPS and I look at the map and I say, you know what? You're right. I am going the wrong way. That's confession. I agree with her, I agree with the map, the authority, the standard of which direction I should go, that I'm going the wrong way. That's confession. But what if I looked at the map and I said, you're right, baby, we are going the wrong way. And then I just kept driving. <laughs> and after about five minutes, she goes, um, you know, baby, I'm looking at the map here. It looks like you're still going the wrong way. And I look at the map and I say, ha, you're right. I agree. I confess. I am going the wrong way. And I keep driving the wrong way, right? 
At some point, she'll be like, what are you doing? We're still going the wrong way. Repentance doesn't take place until I look at the map. I agree I'm going the wrong way. I slam on the brakes. I make a U-turn, and I repent and turn and start going in the right direction. That's repentance. Some of us are really good at confession. You're right, Pastor Sidney. That is sin. All right, I'm going to go keep doing it. You know, that... We're kind of agreeing that it's sin, but there's no repentance. Repentance is when we stop that thing and turn and head in the right direction with Christ. Well, that's what Zacchaeus does. He confesses, he repents. And so what does Jesus say about his house there in verse 9? He says, today salvation has come to this house. We need transformation in our home. We need salvation to come to our home. We need grace and freedom and forgiveness in our home. We need the fruit of the Spirit in our home. Love. Can you imagine your home this week with more love? What about more joy? More peace? Patience? Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Can you imagine those things blessing your home this week? Jesus looks at the house of Zacchaeus while everyone else is calling it the house of a sinner. Because Jesus is there, because repentance has taken place, Jesus says, no, salvation has come to this house. I wonder this morning, what would Jesus say about our homes today? What would Jesus say about our homes this morning? In verse 10, it's one of my favorite verses. Jesus says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. We didn't first seek after Christ. He was seeking after us. Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus just to satisfy his curiosity. But Jesus knew what Zacchaeus needed was not his curiosity satisfied. What Zacchaeus needed was transformation in his home. And that's why he said, get out of the tree. I don't need you in the tree. You need me in your house. We don't need to just be curious about Jesus, somewhat interested in Jesus. We need to long to see him come into our hearts and into our homes. You know, earlier this summer, I'd been having these uh, chest pains. And a couple nights in a row, I'd wake up in the middle of the night, and it felt like someone was just squeezing my heart and gripping it. And I'd sit there for a few minutes, and Jess is just sleeping. And I'm over there, you know, dying. And uh, finally, it'd go away. And the next morning, I'd tell her about it. She'd say, you know, I really think that sounds like a heart attack. She'd probably call the doctor. I said, no, I'm fine. And then a couple nights later, it happened again. Well, finally, on a Sunday night, uh, around 9 o'clock, it started hurting. And it's just hurting and hurting. It's pressure on my chest. I feel like squeezing around my chest. And it lasted for about three hours. Didn't go away. And so, you know, my wife starts Googling my symptoms. Have you ever Googled symptoms, by the way? Don't do that. Because no matter what your symptom is, when you Google, it'll say death. You know, you're dying. We used to do that with our kids, we, especially our first kid. You don't know anything about kids. And we had a little baby, and we'd Google, uh, baby's crying and has a little fever. And, of course, it pops up. It's like, she's dying. And everything just freaks you out. So my wife starts Googling it, and everything just says, well, yeah, it's a heart attack or something. So finally, after three hours, I decided to go to the doctor. So I go to the doctor midnight on a Sunday night. I'm there in the little ER, and they run every test in the book. Apparently, if you tell them you feel like you're having a heart attack, they take it seriously like a heart attack. <laughs> and so they run every, they, they did 
cholesterol test, a blood pressure test. They did like six blood tests. At some point, I was thinking, how much blood do I actually have that you keep taking more out for tests? They did x-rays. They did EKGs. They did a CAT scan. They even did an ultrasound, which I thought you had to be pregnant to get an ultrasound. And so when they said they were doing an ultrasound, I thought, I'm in big trouble if I'm pregnant. And, uh, but I got to see my heart on TV. That was pretty, that was worth the money right there. Uh, that was, and after all that, they said I just had a little infection, gave me some antibiotics. I took it and I was fine. Praise God. But for us, we don't need a CAT scan, an x-ray, EKG to tell us the condition of our heart. The Bible tells us the condition of our heart. In Jeremiah 17, it says our hearts are wicked and deceitfully sick. Paul says we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul says there's no one who is good, no, not one. We know the condition of our heart. It's fallen. It's sinful. It's wicked. Left to our own devices, we would never seek after the Lord. We'll always go the way of the world. We don't need an EKG and a CAT scan to tell us right now the condition of our homes. The Bible will shed light on that. I imagine that most of you right now, if you are to be honest, you could tell us the condition of your heart and the condition of your home. And as we reflect on where we are right now in our hearts and our homes, I believe we could all say there's some transformation that needs to take place. There's still some growth. There's still some areas that we need to surrender to the Lord. There's still some things in my life that I need God to get a hold of. Our hearts and our homes, just like Zacchaeus, need transformation. Now, are you ready for some good news this morning? The good news is we can have transformation. So we recognize that we need transformation. And now I want to celebrate that the gospel transforms our homes. So I said I want us to do three things this morning. The first is I want us to recognize our need for transformation. The second is I want us to just celebrate the gospel. Now, some people think that the gospel is just for lost people. Right? The gospel is what you share with lost people. But Christians also need the gospel, don't we? Have you ever thought about this? The majority of the New Testament is what? Christians writing to other Christians. It's Paul writing to the Christians in Rome or the Christians in Philippi, the Christians in Ephesus, the Christians in Corinth. It's writing to the Christian Timothy, the Christian Titus. It's John writing to Christians, Peter writing to Christians. The majority of the New Testament is Christians writing to Christians, reminding them of the gospel. So today, as we have some Christians here, let's remind each other of the gospel. Let us celebrate the gospel. I don't want to go through this whole gospel family series talking about how we need the gospel in the home, how the gospel can transform our homes, and not take time to simply proclaim what is the gospel message. So let's take time this morning to celebrate the gospel, remind one another what is the gospel. You know, the Bible teaches us that in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. There's one true living God, and he created everything. He created the plants and the fish and the birds and the animals. He created the sun, the moons, the stars, the galaxies, the planets. And he created people. Male and female, in his own image, he created them. He created the first family, Adam and Eve. And he put them in a garden. And he told Adam and Eve, you can eat of any tree in the garden except for the tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. If you eat the fruit of that tree, you'll die. But Satan came along to Eve and says, if you eat of the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, you won't die. And Eve took the fruit and she ate it. She gave it to her husband who was right there with him and he ate it. 
And sin entered the world. And when sin entered the world, some other things came with it. Shame also entered the world. They looked down and for the first time as they looked at their nakedness, for the first time ever, they felt shame. And just like when we sin, we try to cover up our shame. And when they sin, they try to cover up their shame. So they took fig leaves and tried to make clothes to cover up their shame. But fear also entered the world. When we sin, here comes shame. When we sin, here comes fear. And just as we hide from God when we sin, Adam and Eve, they hid from God when they were afraid. But even in their sin, trying to cover their shame, trying to hide from God, God sought them out. And God called them by name. God punished them for their sin. To Adam, he said, there's now going to be thorns in the ground. To Eve, he said, there's now going to be pain in childbirth. So with sin, we have shame and fear and thorns and pain and death. But God also made a promise as he looked at Satan. God said that one day there would be a descendant to come through the family of Eve. One who would come who would crush Satan. So if you're reading scripture for the first time from that first promise in Genesis 3.15, every person you meet, you're wondering, is this the one who's going to crush Satan? God also did a beautiful thing there in the garden. Adam and Eve tried to cover their shame with fig leaves, but we can't cover our own shame, can we? So God made a sacrifice, and he took the skins of an animal, and through the sacrifice, he covered their nakedness. God is the one through sacrifice who covered their shame. So now we're waiting for the one who's going to crush Satan. We're waiting for the sacrifice who's going to cover our shame. Adam and Eve had two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain wasn't the one who crushed Satan because Cain just crushed his brother Abel. Abel wasn't the one who crushed Satan because Abel just got crushed by Cain. And God gave them another son named Seth. And through the lineage of Seth came a man named Noah. Now during the time of Noah, all the people in the world were sinful, wicked, depraved, rebellious. And there's punishment for sin. So God sent a flood to punish them for their sin and he destroyed the world. But God is able to save families even from sin. And so God saved Noah and his family through the ark. And after the flood, he brought Noah and his family out of the ark. And they begin to multiply and to grow into multiple families. And by Genesis chapter 11, we have lots of families all over again. But now at this point, they only make up one nation. They're all speaking one language. And they try to build the Tower of Babel to make a name for themselves. Instead of spreading out as God commanded them to stay in one place. And they're trying to build this tower to make a name for themselves. So God confuses their languages and he sends them out. And now we have thousands of nations Thousands of languages. And in the very next chapter, God chooses one man from one nation, Abraham. And God tells Abraham, as he looks at all these other nations now that exist, God tells Abraham, through you, one will come who will bless all nations. So now we're waiting for the one who's going to crush Satan. We're waiting for the sacrifice who's going to cover our shame. We're waiting for the one who's going to bless all nations. Abraham had a son named Isaac. And God told Abraham, take Isaac, your son, your only son whom you love, up on the mountain and offer him as a sacrifice. Abraham obeyed and he took Isaac. And as they were walking up the mountain, Isaac said, Dad... I see the wood for the sacrifice. I see the knife for the sacrifice. I see the fire for the sacrifice. But where is the lamb? And Abraham said, God will provide. We are now waiting for the lamb of God that God will provide. Abraham laid Isaac on the altar. 
But before he could offer him as a sacrifice, an angel of the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, Do not harm the boy, but look there in the thicket of the thorns, there is a ram. And so Abraham took the ram as a substitutionary sacrifice and put it on the altar in place of the boy. And his death meant the boy's life. So now we're waiting for the one who's going to crush Satan. We're waiting for the sacrifice to cover our shame. We're waiting for the Lamb of God provided by God. We're waiting for the substitutionary sacrifice that will take our place and his death will mean our life. Isaac had a son named Jacob and God changed his name to Israel so that all of his descendants are called the Israelites. Israel, Jacob, had 12 sons, one of whom was Joseph. And through Joseph, God moved that whole family, the nation of Israel, to Egypt. But there in Egypt, they became slaves. They were slaves for 430 years until God raised up a man named Moses to deliver them from their slavery. God sent Moses into Egypt, and God sent 10 plagues into Egypt. And the 10th plague to demonstrate his power to deliver his people was the plague of the Passover lamb. He told all the families there in Israel, living in Egypt, all the Israelites, he said, take a pure, spotless lamb. And sacrifice that lamb. Take the blood of that spotless lamb and put it over the doorpost of your home. And if you put the blood of the spotless lamb over the doorpost of your home, then the wrath of God will pass over your family tonight. So we're waiting for the pure, spotless, perfect Passover lamb who will shed their blood and cover our homes so that the wrath of God will pass over our families and our sin. God used Moses to deliver the people out of slavery. God used a man named Joshua to lead them into the promised land. And during the time of Joshua, they had judges ruling over the nation. But then they asked for a king, so God gave them a king named Saul. And after Saul, he gave them a king named David. And during the reign of David, God promised that this one who's coming, this one we're waiting for, the Messiah that we've been waiting for since Genesis 3.15, that he will come and he will reign as king forever. And that he would come through the family of David. During the times of the kings, there's some prophets as well. And they also prophesied more promises about the one who's going to come. One of them prophesied that the one who's coming, the one we're waiting for, would be born of a virgin. Another one prophesied that the one who's coming would be born in Bethlehem. Isaiah said that the one who's coming would be a suffering servant. He'd be pierced for our iniquities, crushed for our transgressions, and by his wounds we would be healed. And then Jesus was born. Jesus was born of a virgin. He was born in Bethlehem. He was born through the lineage of David, through the family of David. And when he was 30 years old, he began his ministry. And when he began his ministry, his cousin John the Baptist said to, about Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. Jesus' earthly ministry lasted for three years, and during those three years, he healed the blind, he walked on water, he calmed the storm, he fed the 5,000, and he proclaimed the kingdom of God. And on the night before he was crucified, he celebrated the Passover supper with his disciples. And he taught us that he is that Passover lamb. He took the bread and broke it and said, this is my body which will be broken for you. He took the wine and he said, this is my blood which will be spilled out for the forgiveness of many. Then he and his disciples sang a hymn in that upper room, and then they went out to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus sweat blood in the garden as he prayed. A close disciple betrayed him. 
a band of armed soldiers arrested him. One of his best friends denied even knowing him. He was found innocent in his trial and yet sentenced to the death penalty. They flogged him with a leather braided whip with metal balls on the end that beat against his back. Pieces of sharp bone woven into the whip, dug into his flesh on his back, tearing it away from his body. His muscles were torn, his veins laid bare. His beard was torn and they spat in his face. They took a crown of thorns and dug it into his head. They made him carry his own cross before they took seven-inch long spikes and hammered them into his wrists and to his feet, crushing his nerves. When they lifted him up on the cross, his arms were thrown up, dislocating his shoulders. And he hung there on the cross, humiliated, exposed, and suffering for six hours in front of his mother. Just to take a breath, he'd have to push down on his nail-pierced feet to lift his body up to take his breath, scraping his back against that splintery wooden cross. After he died and breathed, his last a Roman soldier took a spear and thrusted it into his side, spilling out blood and water. And then they took his dead body off the cross and they placed it in a tomb. They sealed it with a huge rock and guarded it with armed soldiers. Death of the cross, death on a cross was so painful and violent that back then they had to invent a new word to describe the pain. They did not have a word in their language that was sufficient to describe the pain of the cross. So they came up with a new word. It's a word we still use today. The word is excruciating. It literally means out of the cross. In fact, nearly 100 years before Jesus died on the cross, there was a Roman philosopher and lawyer named Cicero. And Cicero debated on the Senate floor there in Rome against using the cross for the death penalty. Nearly 100 years before Christ died on the cross, Cicero debated there and said, the cross is a cruel and most disgusting punishment, and yet Jesus endured the cross for us. He was in the tomb for three days, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and on the third day, he rose from the dead because Jesus has victory over sin. He has victory over death. And the Bible teaches it when we repent of our sins and we turn from our sins, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ because he's taken our sin upon himself on the cross. He's taken our thorns. He's taken our pain. He's taken our shame. He's taken our death that if we would believe in him, he'll forgive us of our sins. He'll give us a new heart, a new life, a new start. We'll become new creation in Jesus Christ because he is the one who came to crush Satan. He is a sacrifice that covers our shame. He's a lamb of God provided by God. He's the one who comes to bless all nations. He's a substitutionary sacrifice that takes our place and his death means our life. He's a pure, spotless, perfect, blameless Passover lamb of God who covers our homes and our families in his blood. And when we believe in him, the wrath of God passes over our home and our sin. He is a suffering serpent. Serpent that was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and by his wounds we are healed, and he is the king forever. We celebrate the gospel because our homes need to be transformed. And because of Jesus and who he is and what he's done on the cross, our homes can be transformed. And that leads me to my last thought this morning that I want to close with. 
We're going to recognize our need for transformation. We're going to celebrate the gospel. And finally today, church, I want us to simply depend upon the power of the gospel to transform our families. In Romans 1.16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. It will bring salvation to you, to your spouse, to your children, your grandchildren, your relatives, your neighbors. There is no one who is so far gone that Christ can't save them. There is no sin that is so deep or has lasted so long that Christ can't forgive the power of the gospel is the only thing that will transform our families. A new job, a new promotion, more money in your bank account will not transform your families. Your kids having better grades or better manners will not transform your family. Self-help books will not transform your family. The type of transformation our homes need will only be seen through the power of the gospel in Jesus Christ. We see this in Acts 10. In Acts chapter 10, there's a man named Cornelius. And Cornelius has a vision where God tells him to invite the apostle Peter into his home. So he sends men to Peter's house. Meanwhile, God gives Peter a vision saying, men are coming. Make sure you go with them. So when they show up and say, hey, Cornelius wants you to come to his house. And Peter doesn't say, I've never heard of that guy. Peter says, okay, God told me to go, so I'm going. But by the time he gets to Cornelius' house in Acts 10, verse 24 and 27, the scripture tells us that it's not just Cornelius sitting there in his living room waiting for Peter. Cornelius knows that there's a message from God that Peter's going to bring. And he knows that his family is desperate for that message. So he gets all his family together, all of his relatives, all his friends together. It tells us they're all there in the house in Acts 10. When Peter gets there, it says Peter found a packed house. Can you imagine? He walks in and he sees Cornelius in this crowd of people. Because Cornelius knows he has to depend upon the gospel to transform his home and his family. So he gets them all together. And Peter preaches the gospel. In Acts 10, 36, it says, Peter announced the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. Our sin separates us from God, but through Jesus Christ, we can have peace with God. In verse 39 and 40, Peter preached what I just shared with you. The crucifixion, the resurrection, Peter says, they killed Jesus by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day. In verse 43, Peter says, everyone who believes in him will receive forgiveness of sins through his name. Cornelius made a way for the gospel to come into his home and to bless his entire family. And they believed. Peter says, if you believe, then you'll receive forgiveness of sins. Cornelius believed. His family believed. They were baptized. They were forgiven. They became a new creation. His home was forever transformed simply because he brought the gospel through the front doors. You would never eat a Sunday lunch that was so good and so delicious that after that lunch you would say, you know what? Today's lunch was so good and so delicious, I'm not going to eat for the rest of the week. You would never do that. So why do we come to church on Sunday morning and say, you know what? The worship was so good, the prayer time and the sermon, the preaching, the teaching, it was so good that I don't need any more spiritual nourishment for the rest of the week. I'll see you next Sunday. And we fast from spiritual, spiritual nourishment throughout the week. No. 
We need to bring the gospel in our home. The things we do on Sunday mornings, we need to do on Monday mornings and Tuesday nights and Wednesday afternoons and Thursday mornings and Fridays and Saturdays. We need to do these things in the home. Worship, pray, enjoy God's word in the home. We need to bring the gospel in the home and then depend upon it and depend upon Christ to transform our homes. You know, if you were to buy a house today, if you were to look for a house across the street or down the road, you might get online and look for houses. And when you're looking to buy a new house, there's certain pieces of information it always tells you. There's certain phrases you'll see. It'll tell you the price. It'll tell you how many square feet. It'll tell you how many bedrooms, how many bathrooms, how many half bathrooms, which I try to trick my kids and tell them that a half bathroom is where it's just half the toilet. Uh, but they didn't, they didn't believe me. But they tell you how many bedrooms, how many bathrooms, how many half bathrooms, all those things. But there's another phrase that you'll see sometimes when you're looking for a new house. It'll be the phrase that says, move in ready. Have you seen this? Move in ready. What they mean is that this house is clean, it is new, it is updated, all the repairs have been made, all the updates have been made, it is turnkey, move in ready, you're going to give them your money, they're going to give you a key, you're going to walk in, you don't need to do anything to it. It's ready for you. But there's another phrase you'll see, which is kind of the opposite. Sometimes it says move in ready, but sometimes it says sold as is. Have you seen this? Red flags start going up when you see that, right? What that means is the, the, the seller, the owner, knows my house is filthy. My house is not updated. Everything is dirty. Everything is broken. I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to see the inspection and then you ask me to fix it. Look, we know it's filthy. We know it's moldy. We know it's disgusting. We know it's broken. We're selling it as is. And if you buy it, then you know when you move in, you got to make all the repairs. you got to get out the mold and the filth and the dirt. you got to replace everything, update everything. you got to start from scratch, right? Friends, listen. When we come to Jesus Christ, when we bring our hearts to him, our marriages to him, our children to him, our families to him, none of us come move in ready. None of us can go to Jesus and say, Jesus, we got it all figured out. Now you just come into our heart and into our home and we're good. Just come and sit back and enjoy it, Lord. We got it all cleaned up for you. No, we come as is. With all of our sin, with all of our dirt, with all of our addictions, with all of our filth and mold and rebellion and pride and lust and selfishness. We bring it all to him, all the mess in your home right now, all the challenges in your marriage, all the challenges with your children right now. When we come to Jesus, we bring it all as is. We say, Jesus, we need you to move into our heart. We need you to move into our home. You're going to have your work cut out for you. Come into our heart. Come into our home and repair what's broken. And that's what Christ does. He comes into our brokenness. He starts to repair, restore, heal, forgive. And he doesn't just redecorate. He completely renovates everything. He transforms everything. And he doesn't sign a one-year lease. He doesn't say it's going to be month to month. When Jesus moves in and dwells in our hearts and our homes, he does it permanently, eternally. And he transforms us in a way that will bless not just us, but our entire families. If you invite Jesus into your heart, if you invite Jesus into your home, I believe that every sin, every broken place, that in those things, in your marriage, in your parenting, in all those things, you will see him transform it all. Let's pray together this morning.
Jesus, you are the savior of the nations. You're the creator of families and you're the only one who can transform families, Lord. And we confess to you this morning, God, that there are broken areas in our marriages and in our homes and with our parenting. And Lord, there's hurt and sin and wounds and we just bring it all to you just as we are, Lord Jesus. And we ask for you, Jesus, to move into our heart, to move into our home and to radically transform us for your glory. We need you, Jesus. We cry out to you this morning. Amen.